The following program is sponsored by Friends of Life Outreach International. There are great adventures in Christ waiting for those who will say, I'm all in. Next on Life Today, Sheila Walsh asks the question, what does it mean as a Christian to be all in? Either everything that Jesus said is true, and if it's true, we should be in 100%, or it's not, and then we should just walk away and find something else to give our lives to. Hi, welcome to Life Today. I'm Sheila Walsh, and I'm so glad that you stopped by. You know, I was talking to a friend the other day who said that he's really discouraged. He pastors a small church, and he's noticed that a lot of younger couples are kind of falling away. He said he still has, you know, the senior members who are very faithful and who still show up for everything. But he said there seems to be a kind of loss of interest in what it means to be a believer, what it means to be um, fully committed. And it's been on my heart so much. And that's really what I want us to talk about today. What does it mean as a Christian to be all in? Because the more I think about it, the more I think either everything that Jesus said is true. And if it's true, we should be in 100%, 24-7, on mission, or it's not and then we should just walk away and find something else to give our lives to. But for me, the, the longer I've walked with Christ, the more that I've understood the beauty of having God as my father, the more that I want at this stage and age to be all in. And I was um, looking through, I had a long flight recently, and so I was just kind of reading through the gospels and into some of Paul's letters. And I stopped on this one story, which, you know, I know this story. I mean, I've, I've heard it since I was just a wee girl growing up in Scotland. But I think there's something in that that speaks to the questions that are on my mind at the moment. So let me just read this passage to you. Um, you're probably familiar with it. We, we kind of refer to it as the story of the rich young ruler. But, but, but here's what it says. Someone came to Jesus with this question. Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Why ask me about what is good, Jesus replied. There is only one who is good. But to answer your question, if you want to receive eternal life, keep the commandments. Well, which ones, the man asked. And Jesus replied, you must not murder, you must not commit adultery, you must not steal, you must not testify falsely, honor your father and mother, love your neighbor as yourself. I've obeyed all these commandments, the young man replied. What else must I do? And Jesus told him, if you want to be perfect, go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. But when the young man heard this, he went away sad for he had many possessions. If you want to read that for yourself, you'll find that story in Matthew chapter 19. Well, I remember reading this passage when I was a young girl. I was probably 13 or 14. 
and I was so convicted by it. So what I did was I took all my earthly possessions, which were not much back then. One of my favorite authors was a British writer called Enid Blyton, and I had all the books. There was a series called The Famous Five and The Secret Seven. So I put all of those into a little suitcase and just little bits of jewelry I had, anything that I thought would be worth something. So I took all my stuff to school the next day in this little suitcase. And at lunchtime, I sold everything to my friends so that I could give the money to the poor. Well, my mum at that point was very involved with the Baptist Missionary Society, so I just presented this to my mum and said, I've sold everything I have and I want you to give it to the poor. Well, in retrospect, I'm not sure I quite understood the passage, the way that Christ intended us to read it and what he was actually saying to this man. It, it wasn't that this young man had money. It was really that the money had him. It was how much he loved it and valued it above everything else. Christ, I mean, one of the most amazing things about our Lord, he can see right into our hearts, knows us better than we know ourselves. And when he looked at this young man, he knew that the love of money was going to be his downfall. But my question in this is, what does it mean to be all in? as a believer, you know, what does that actually look like? Well, I want us to look at a passage in Matthew 17 that might give us a glimpse. You know, I, I was studying this recently and I read it differently than I've ever read it before. It's the story that we refer to as the transfiguration or when Christ was transformed on the mountaintop. So um, let me read it. I actually have, I'm gonna read it in one gospel and then an extra little part that Mark included in his gospel. And I'm only gonna read you that because it's funny and it's so human. But first of all, let's look at this one. Six days later, Jesus took Peter and the two brothers, James and John, and led them up a high mountain to be alone. As the men watched, Jesus' appearance was transformed so that his face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as light. Suddenly. Moses and Elijah appeared and began talking with Jesus. Peter exclaimed, Lord, it's wonderful for us to be here. If you want, I'll make three shelters as memorials, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. But even as he spoke, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. Listen to him. Well, the disciples were terrified and fell face down on the ground. Then Jesus came over and touched them. Get up, he said, don't be afraid. And when they looked up, Moses and Elijah were gone and they saw only Jesus. As they went back down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, don't tell anyone what you have seen until the son of man has been raised from the dead. Well, that rendering is from Matthew chapter 17. You can read it in verses one through nine. But here's one of my questions. Why was it just Peter, James, and John that went? Why would it not have been all 12 of the disciples? I was recently speaking at a pastor's retreat with my dear friend, um, Phil Waldrop. And we were talking about this passage and he suggested perhaps they were the only ones 
you know, who were willing to go. I mean, try and imagine the scenario. You know, Jesus says, um, I'm going up the mountain. Who wants to come with me? And, you know, I'm, I'm wondering, maybe some of them are like, well, yeah, I'd love to, Lord, but I, I need a nap. Or I have chores to do for my mom. You know, I'll catch you later. But Peter, James, and John were all in, fully committed. And it made me wonder if that's why on the darkest night in the life of Christ, it was these three men that he took with him further into the Garden of Gethsemane. Christ must have seen something in these three. Remember, you know, that he can look right into our hearts and see what's going on. You know, he chose the 12. He loved the 12. But what was it Jesus saw when he looked into the hearts, into the eyes of Peter, James, and John? So these three men went with Christ up into a high mountain and they saw, I can't imagine what that was like. They saw Christ transfigured, transformed before him, his face shining like the sun, speaking with Moses, representing the law, and Elijah, representing the prophets. Now, let me ask you a question. How did they know that it was Moses and Elijah? I mean, there's no Facebook then, no Instagram. They couldn't look up Moses' profile to see what he looked like now. No, it, the Spirit must have revealed to them who was standing there on that high mountain with Christ. And I told you in Mark's gospel, he gives a funny and I think very human detail that Matthew omits. This is just a tiny couple of verses. Peter exclaimed, Rabbi, it's wonderful for us to be here. Let's make three shelters as memorials, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He said this because he really didn't know what else to say, for they were all terrified. I think that's hilarious. You know, can you imagine what it must have been like in those days to walk with Christ? Every single day, something new happened. That he could make fish appear where there'd been no fish. He could touch the eyes of someone who was blind and suddenly they could see so many amazing miracles. But then suddenly they have this incredible privilege of seeing Christ for the first time transformed. And as they watch, and suddenly there's Moses and Elijah. These men have been brought up in the temple. They know all the stories of what kind of man Moses was and that God himself took Moses' bones and buried them. And how personal can God get? And Elijah was taken up in a chariot and they got to see it. Well, after they are privileged to be part of this holy moment, Jesus said this to them, don't tell anyone what you've seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. Don't tell anyone and until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. We take all that for granted now, but this is way before the crucifixion and the resurrection. I mean, I found myself wondering, what was it like for them when they went back down and they meet up later, you know, with the other disciples? I mean, can you imagine? They're like, hey guys, how did it go up the mountain? It was good, yep. It was really good. You're gonna wish you came, but we can't tell you till a lot later. Well, they didn't tell. Scripture tells us that, but I'm sure that Peter, James, and John 
must have had many conversations among themselves about what, what was really happening there. And what did Jesus mean when he said, after the Son of Man has been raised from the dead? But you know what I take from that? There are great adventures in Christ waiting for those who will say, I'm all in. You know, sitting on a fence is kind of uncomfortable. I don't know if you've ever tried it. It used to be that when um, the home that my family lived in in Scotland, my brother loved to play soccer and his friend Gary from next door would come over and play soccer. And my role was to get their soccer ball back when it landed over on the, the fence over on the other family because they had a boxer dog and both boys were scared of this dog and I wasn't. So I was the one that had to always clamber up onto the fence and get over and get their soccer ball back. Let me be honest, sitting on a fence is very uncomfortable. And I think that's true in our faith. We're living in difficult days. I mean, I don't know if you sense it in your spirit, you know, whether you're watching television or watching the news or just even out in our culture, on social media, things are shifting in the spiritual realm. You can feel greater darkness. And these are days for you and I to decide that we're all in. Because if, think about it, if what you believe in here is true, that should radically impact how we live every single day of our lives. And maybe you think, well, you know what? I'm a little behind the curve here because for years I've not really been in, all in. Let me tell you something that might be an encouragement to you. Even Christ's own family weren't all in until he'd been raised from the dead. You know, we, we read, um, scripture says, one time Jesus entered a house and the crowds began to gather again. Soon he and his disciples couldn't even find time to eat. And then we read this in Mark 3. When his family heard what was happening, they tried to take him away. He's out of his mind, they said. That's what Christ's brothers and sisters said. He's out of his mind. John records for us just in a simple, straightforward sentence. John 7, verse 5, even his brothers didn't believe in him. But all of that changed when Jesus rose from the dead. I don't know how familiar you are with the book of James, but if you've read it recently, do you realize that James was Jesus' little brother? Can you imagine what it must have been like to have Jesus as your big brother? I mean, never did anything wrong, never messed up, did everything perfect at the temple, honored his father, honored his mother, and then you come along and it's like, how do you measure up to Jesus when he's your big brother? Well, when James wrote his letter, it was during a time of extreme persecution for believers, a time when it cost you dearly to be all in. And a lot of the Jewish people had been scattered all around the world. So he's writing to those people but what I want you to hear is how he begins his letter, just the very first verse, James 1, 1. He says, this letter is from James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. The word used for slave here is the Greek word doulos, D-O-U-L-O-S. And it means slave or bond servant. I don't know if you're familiar with the idea of a bond servant. A bond servant was someone who had been given his freedom, but chose to stay. It was like, you know, say you had 20 years of indentured service, but you've done your time and now your boss says, thank you, you're free to go. 
but a bond servant was someone whose price had been paid. He was free, but he chose to stay. James knew that his big brother had paid his debt and he was free. But now he gladly made himself a slave, a bondservant to the one who was not just his earthly brother, but the Lord Jesus Christ. I um, heard a story of this boy in Scotland. It's way up in the north, way up in the Hebridean Islands. And he was kind of the local troublemaker. And they knew that if anything it was broken into, if a bike went missing or something, they knew it was Jimmy who had done it. Well, one night, Jimmy showed up at the Sunday evening service in the small church. Now, what he didn't know was that for a couple of weeks, the elders had been saying to the pastor, you know, we really need to pray for some conversions. We haven't seen anyone come to Christ recently. Well, on that Sunday night, Jimmy came in the back of the church thinking that he would be able to take whatever had been gathered in the offering plate and disappear before they sang the last hymn. But God was in that place. And we, Jimmy, as they all called him, was drawn to sit actually in the back pew. And that night, Christ looked right into Jimmy's heart and told him, I love you. And that night, Jimmy gave his life to Jesus. Well, three weeks later, Jimmy's back in church and it's the morning service and the deacons are passing the offering plates and Jimmy's sitting right on the end of a pew. And when the, when the deacon came to him with the offering plate, Jimmy said, would you put it on the floor? And the deacon said, no son, just pass it along the row. And he said, no, please, would you just put it on the floor? And the deacon said, Jimmy, it doesn't matter if you don't have any money, just pass it along. But Jimmy persisted, please, would you just put it on the floor? So the deacon put the offering plate on the floor and we, Jimmy, stepped in and said, Lord, I'm all in. I don't have a lot, but I am all in until it's all over. That's what I wanna ask you. What about if you and I make a decision that we are gonna be all in for Jesus because he's worth it, because every word in this book is true and it's life and it will change you forever. And I don't care if you're 10 or 98, if you've got a pulse, if there's not a white chalk mark around your body, it is not too late to say, I am all in. And when you're all in, it changes how you see other people as well. I'll tell you what I mean about that. But first of all, would you watch this? What can you do in 30 seconds? Go fix yourself a cup of coffee? Go answer the door? In 30 seconds, a child can walk past one border into another where they may never return. Bua 
अनेक जाति खेला पनी बंदे माँ उच्च वाले कोई तलते करना सक देना माले रोकना सक देना मजाती खेला पनी घर मायर यो घर घर ना सक सानी माँ घर बार निश्चित दीदी को मंगाए Because of her emptiness and desperation, she was willing to listen to a man that she'd never met who promised her a better life. Thankfully, our mission partners are on that border with their monitors watching every child, every girl that comes through. And as Sweta began to tell her story, they began to ask her questions, and when she answered them, they realized that she was in harm's way, 30 seconds away from being taken a prisoner. We don't have much time to stop this. We need you to act now, so those 30 seconds are seconds for good. What a story. Can you imagine our darling friend, Kyrie James, there at that border, literally watching as children are snatched from the very gates of hell. 30 seconds that can change a life. That's our passion here at Life Outreach. Can you, I mean, I can't even conceive of what it's like as a mother to be so desperate, so have lost all hope that you douse yourself with kerosene and set fire to yourself. I mean, that is, that is the epitome of despair. And then for that darling girl, nobody believed her. Nobody believed her story. But you know what? We believe her. And we believe the other girls that are out there. And so that's why our mission here at Life Outreach, it's like we listen to our partners on the ground. We, we go ourselves, we, we watch what's happening, we learn. And it's, a, it's really a three-stage process. Reach rescue and restore. Reach is that we actually go into the villages before a young girl like that is 30 seconds away from the gates of hell. And we educate, we say, if a man comes up to you and says this, if he gives you this kind of story, run for your life, scream as loudly as you can. So that is preventative. Then rescue is when our teams actually find out where these girls are being held. And in midnight raids, they go in and they literally snatch these girls back. And then the restore part is where we can bring them to a place where they can learn that they have value. You know, I asked one of the pastors that we work with in Phnom Penh in Cambodia, what do you have to say to a girl? And he said, you need to help her understand she's worth more than a chicken because she's sold for less than you would sell a chicken. So we want to bring these girls to a place where they can learn a new craft, learn a trade, have their souls restored. And the, the way we can do that is we have an amazing gift from some of our friends at the moment. They've put up $320,000 as a matching gift. It used to be that $128 is how we start the process of reaching, of rescuing it and beginning to restore. But now, because of this matching gift, if you're able to give $64, they will match that 
and begin this process in the life of one girl. And previously, if you'd been able to give 128, that would have begun the process of reaching, rescuing and restoring a girl. Now it will be matched and it will be two girls. 1,280 matched, now we'll rescue 20. These girls are crying out for someone to believe them. And we want to say, in Jesus' name, we see you, we believe you. So please, will you go to your phone? Will you give the very best gift possible? And let's rescue, let's snatch these girls from the gates of hell and say, Jesus says you are worth being saved. Please do it. Thank you. Behind the bright lights, there is a darkness where a world of innocence is lost and abuse runs rampant, scarring the souls of children with no one and nowhere to turn for help. With bodies broken and hopes crushed, these young victims are trapped in a never-ending nightmare. Today, you can shine the light of God's love in this dark world to reach, rescue, and restore these young ones to the life God designed for them to live. With a generous $320,000 matching gift, now your gift of $128 to help rescue a child can be doubled to help two children. Your $64 gift will be matched to help rescue one child from the horrors of human trafficking. And a $32 mission rescue gift will be doubled to $64. And with your donation of any amount, we'll send you the Faith, Hope, Love tea towel set. These beautifully woven hand towels are a wonderful reminder to remain steadfast in faith, hope, and love each day. With your gift of $128 or more, you'll receive the life-giving Proverbs Journal. Bound in genuine leather, this journal is filled with wisdom and daily encouragement from Proverbs, featuring lined pages for your personal notes as you reflect on godly instruction to success in life. Finally, please consider a gift of $1,280, which will now help rescue 20 children, and you may request our beautiful bronze sculpture, Safe in the Shepherd's Arms. Please call, write, or make your gift online. What I've seen here is the abject poverty that people are living in. And so many young girls are forced into prostitution. They're trafficked because they're desperate. There's no money in the family. So often the father is a drunk, there is debt, and the only job they can get is at the mercy of a sex trafficker. Will you go to your phone? Will you go online? Will you call that number? Will you make the best gift possible so that we can reach, we can rescue, we can restore? Would you do it now? Thank you, please keep calling. This is what Sueta looked like two weeks later, beginning the process of being restored. This works. We would not share this with you if we haven't seen with our own eyes that we can do this. So please, if you tried to call early and the phone line was busy, please keep calling. I mean, you don't have to know a lot of the Word of God to know that God is heart, God's heart is for those who are being held captive. And the fact that we can actually go in and work with our amazing partners on the ground and snatch these girls and drag them into the glory of the presence of Christ. This makes it worth getting up every single day. So I'm Sheila Walsh. So for all of us here at Life Today, see you next time.
Uh, I want Christians to stop living with God as a concept. I want him to be real to them. Nothing wasted tomorrow. Life Today is made possible by the supporters of Life Outreach International. Your gift will be used exclusively for the exempt purposes of life. The ministry features specific outreaches as examples of the programs it supports and conducts. Gifts are considered to be without restriction as to use unless explicitly stipulated by the donor. The ministry is a member of the ECFA.